views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. The following show is dedicated to the memory of John Hospers. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable that all men are created equal, uh, etc. <clears throat> Sacred and undeniable. Smacks of the pulpit. Does it? Uh, these truths are self-evident, are they not? Perhaps. Self-evident, then. Self-evident? Good morning, London. It is Thursday, June 30th, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just Right. To black and white Under the Everything will be alright And welcome to the show today where, once again, as always, the number is 519-661-3600 to call if you want to join in on the conversation or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org And today, I guess, our theme, Robert, is the celebration of two countries' birthdays. Yeah. Happens to happen every year, pretty close to each other. I wonder how that worked out, eh? <laughs> Must have been the summertime when everything happened in North America, right? July 1st and July 4th, of course. And we will be talking about Canada Day on July 4th in America. And at the end of the show, last quarter, I think we're going to sacrifice a little bit of our time to continue that conversation on sacrifice that we started last week. Got an interesting letter, and we'll look at that later. But first, I thought we'd begin not with Canada. Last year on Canada Day, we, did, we devoted the whole day to Canada Day. And this year I thought we might begin with talking about the United States. Sure. Maybe the question to look at is, are, are, are the two countries, Canada and the United States, you, you see them today as anything as maybe how they were planned to be by their, by their creators, if you know what I mean, by the founders? In hindsight, if hindsight was 2020, they should have foreseen some major problems when um, both countries put together their uh, constitutions mm -hmm. and their uh, the United States declaring independence. But hindsight is great, but it, <laughs> unfortunately it only happens hundreds of years later. That's right. And, and how can you judge? Um, well, actually, maybe you can. We might learn something here. You know, if it wasn't self-evident to you already, the characters featured in our opening excerpt uh, from the the HBO film John Adams, which I'll talk about a little later. A remarkable Ab production. Absolutely worth watching. You will live a piece of history if you watch this thing, but we'll talk about that. But that was Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and the characters, you know, Thomas Jefferson. We'll hear a little more of, from them later in some very insightful conversations that almost sound as if they could have taken place in the last Congress of the United States in terms of the issues they were discussing. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, so I guess these truths they were talking about were not sacred and undeniable, but self-evident. 
I thought it was obvious. Yeah? <laughs> we hold these shoes to be obvious. Of course, the problem they had to deal with at the time was slavery. They had to get around that problem. They couldn't eliminate slavery all at once. Mm -hmm. And so they had to figure out a way to word these, their documents and constitutions and declarations and everything around all the political interests of the time. And as always, that starts already eroding things. But it was, uh, the slavery, that is, was a problem that eventually resolved itself, thanks ultimately to the very principles that the three of them debated intensely during the earliest parts of American history. It all worked out in the end, didn't it? In that sense, that, that because of those principles, the slaves were ultimately freed. Well, was it, well, yes, because of those principles, but the thing is that I, I'll elucidate uh, later on, sure. is that those principles did not necessarily have to be uh, demarcated in any formal document because oh, Canada issue, yeah. did the same thing and we did it before that's the American, but based on the same principles. Now, oh, inter another interesting thing, just as a bit of trivia, you know, John Adams, second president of the United States, and Thomas Jefferson died on the exact same day in separate parts of the country. With their hands around each other's throats? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One would almost think, but I think they were still friends, even though political adversaries, mm -hmm. you know. Um, Interesting. Ayn Rand from her lexicon, I was looking at some of the things she said about America, not just her, also uh, Leonard Peikoff. And Rand wrote, I can say, not as a patriotic bromide, but with full knowledge of the necessary metaphysical, epistemological, ethical, political, and aesthetic roots, she got them all covered there, all five <laughs> branches, that the United States of America is the greatest, the noblest, and in its original founding principles, the only moral country in the history of the world. Notice that caveat there. The, in its original it's founding its principles. original founding principles. She's, I, I guess she's alluding to the fact that not necessarily today no, when I she wrote that. Uh, clearly not. But also, what made America different was, uh, I think we're going to talk about this in a difference between Canada and the States. America mm -hmm. actually made a break and had it like a, a fresh start. Canada didn't do that that way. And many other countries in the world did not either. It, it was, was a slow gradual, evolution gradual. from one form of state to another. I'll talk about that later oh, on. Great. That's perfect. Great. Yep. Uh, Leonard Peikoff writes, Since the golden age of Greece, there has been only one era of reason in 23 centuries of Western philosophy. During the final decades of that era, the United States of America was created as an independent nation. This is the key to the country, to its nature, its development, and its uniqueness. The United States is the nation of enlightenment. And then Rand writes again that America's founding ideal was a principle of individual rights. Nothing more, nothing less. The rest, everything that America achieved, everything she became, everything noble and just and heroic and great and unprecedented in human history was the logical consequence of fidelity to that one principle. The first consequence was the principle and this is a consequence she's talking about, not a cause, or was a principle of political freedom. For example, an individual's freedom from physical compulsion, coercion, or interference by government. The next was the economic implementation of political freedom, known as the system of capitalism. It took centuries of intellectual, philosophical development to achieve political freedom. It was a long struggle, stretching from Aristotle to John Locke and to the Founding Fathers. The system they established was not based on majority rule. Isn't that what we hear today all the time? Majority rule. We've got to have more democracy, more democracy, more voting, right? 
But on its very opposite, hmm, that's interesting, on individual rights. That's what, by the way, makes the United States not a democracy. It is a republic. There's a big difference. In that sense. I don't know that the, that the republic itself is what discerns it, but I do understand what your difference you're saying there. Um, aren't, are there not republican or republic governments, governments that call themselves republics that don't have individual rights? I would, You'd have to say there are, wouldn't you? Yes. So it's not the form of republic... No, no, per se, being that, a republic does not necessarily mean yeah. that you're going to be a free country. No. Um, but the individual is not left at the mercy of his neighbors or leaders. The constitutional system of checks and balances was scientifically devised to protect him from both. This was the great American achievement. And if concern for the actual welfare of other nations were our present leaders' motives, this is what we should have been teaching the world, they write. And with that in mind... I thought we might take a listen into this into the founding fathers about how they actually talked about these issues possibly and here we come back to the HBO 2008 production of John Adams which I strongly recommend to watch when I started watching this show it's a seven-part miniseries right mm -hmm. and uh, I think each parts an hour and a half long about and I couldn't stop watching it uh, that was my only my only entertainment for a week or so and I felt like I had lived part of American history and after I watched it I had a connection not just with another country and its history but also with Canada France England I, under I understood a timeline and it's felt so so close to me mm -hmm. uh, you know I'm going wow that was just yesterday that was the feeling I had after watching John Adams. Uh, by the way, it stars Paul Giamatti as John Adams, Stephen Delane as Thomas Jefferson, and Tom Wilkinson as Benjamin Franklin. And man, if you ever wanted to pick three guys to pick, put in these roles as the quintessential uh, characterizations, this was them. Perfectly cast. Yeah, they were the Jeremy Brett to Sherlock Holmes kind of thing for me. You know, mm. like uh, you just couldn't those pick characters. And another actor, Rufus Sewell, played Alexander Hamilton as well in in the in that. Um, miniseries. I mentioned these four because these are the four that we'll be hearing in the next couple of clips. Now, what was really interesting was when I watched the history in this movie, in, in John Adams, I got a sense of deja vu all over again in, in a modern sense, in terms of what you and I are going through, what I see other political movements going through, uh, all the same uh, characteristics of the debate that were going on then are going on today. Except for, I guess, the intensity of it all. America was still young. It was still very agricultural. It hadn't developed. It was, wasn't really even a nation yet. So when, when they were sitting around talking about these things, they were talking about becoming a nation. And so what we're going to do now is take a little bit of an earlier break than we normally do. And we're going to listen in on a conversation. And I think the sheer calm and serenity of the environment in which the following debate takes place stands in stark contrast to the kind of debates that occur in the halls of hollowed houses of government where they yell at each other and scream at each other. Uh, and the funny thing is in those hollowed houses of government, they don't talk about fundamental ideas. You know, they don't talk about uh, what is 
the nature of individual rights. What's the relationship of a person to his government? They basically talk about, should we tax him $100 or $100 and one cent? The sad you thing know? is they don't even take him for granted anymore. They actually violate all of the principles that upon which we were founded and the United States were founded. That's right. And so there are two parts to this. I'm going to, first of all, on the other side of the bumper when we come back, we're going to be hearing an interesting debate between um, John Hamilton a Federalist with, who's debating with Jefferson in Philadelphia over the creation of a Treasury Department, which is actually the beginning of the debt trap that we all find ourselves in today. Mm-hmm. It didn't start with Obama. It didn't start with Reagan. It started as long back as then. And even Jefferson was completely lamenting the idea that, man, he didn't even get through one term and already the trouble is starting, right? Establishing credit and getting into debt and establishing a central government. But first, on this side of the bumper, what we're going to be hearing is a fascinating conversation between Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson. Now, I always saw Franklin as the liberal, Adams as the conservative, and Jefferson as the freedom, libertarian kind of guy. The three of them are sitting in a garden. There are other people around. You'll hear some background sounds. And while the sound of birds and insects, you know, kind of fill the time in which to reflect upon these profound ideas that they're talking about. And the first voice that you're going to hear is that of Benjamin Franklin speaking to John Adams and uh, Jefferson on his expectations of the upcoming Philadelphia Constitution talks. And we'll be back in about seven minutes or so. We have had our disagreements, (laughs) but you have always been an honest collaborator. I can think of no better choice to represent the United States and Great Britain than yourself. The English love an insult. It's their only test of a man's sincerity. Ah. Uh. (laughs) My own days abroad are at a close. Mr. Jefferson will replace me here quite well, I'm sure. I merely succeed you, Dr. Franklin. No one can replace you. Well, I I fear none of us will taste the bread of idleness. There is talk of a convention in Philadelphia. They are to discuss a binding constitution, I hope, to attend, if only to have an effect on the style of its prose. I expect that any constitutional document that emerges from Philadelphia will be as compromised as our Declaration of Independency. I am increasingly persuaded that the earth belongs exclusively to the living and that one generation has no more right to bind another to its laws and judgments than one independent nation has the right to command another. But surely the Constitution, as it did with the ones we wrote for our own states, is meant to establish the stability and the long-term legality essential to the continuation of civilized society. Yes, possibly. But I fear it could prove a breach in the integrity of our revolutionary ideals through which we'll pour the forces of reaction. Doctor, Mr. Jefferson's pet topic is not the artful arrangement of political power, but the cordoning off of a space in which no power exists at all. You, sir, 
You are a walking contradiction. Mm, you're all contradictions, Mr. Adams. Indeed, yes. And what is government, ultimately, but the putting into effect of the lessons which we have learned in dealing with the contradictions in our own characters? You have a disconcerting lack of faith in your fellow man, Mr. A. And in yourself, if I may say. Yes, and you display a dangerous excess of faith in your fellow man, Mr. Jefferson. Well, I'm sure we'll all disagree a great deal. Uh -huh. Our country is founded on the right to disagree. Still, we must prevail, if only to prove Mr. Dickinson wrong, that we will not tear ourselves asunder after the defeat of our common enemy. We've come too far to be undone by petty rivalries. Uh, it is no small thing to build a new world, gentlemen. We have our republic. We must endeavor to keep it, if we can. find Philadelphia much changed. More changed than I could have imagined, Mr. Hamilton. Not the city itself. All cities swallow everything in their weight. That's no surprise to me. That's why I abhor them. But I've been, as you know, in revolutionary France, where the streets are filled with the songs of liberty and brotherhood and the overthrow of ancient tyrannies of Europe, and to return from there to this our cradle of revolution and find the dinner table chatter is all of money and banks and authority is an unwelcome surprise. Unwelcome, perhaps, but necessary. I must admit, Mr. Hamilton, I uh, a little uncertain <laughs> as to the purpose of the Treasury Department. <laughs> no doubt its function will reveal itself to me in good time. The future prosperity of this nation rests chiefly in trade. Trade depends, among other things, on the willingness of other nations to lend us money. And how would you propose to establish international credit? Our first step would be to incur a national debt. The greater the debt, the greater the credit. And to that end, I have recommended to the President that Congress adopt all the debts incurred by the individual states during the war through a national bank. The idea being that if the states owe Congress money, then other nations will feel more inclined to lend it to us. If the states are indebted to a central authority, it increases the power of the central government. There you have it exactly. The greater the government's responsibility, the greater its authority. Mm. The moneyed interest in this country is all in the north, so the wealth and power would inevitably be concentrated there in the federal government, to the expense of the south. If that is the case, it is unavoidable if the union is to be preserved. I fear our revolution will have been in vain if a Virginia farmer is to be held in hock to a New York stock jobber, who in turn is in hock to a London banker. The opportunities for uh, avarice and corruption would certainly prove irresistible. Well, there you have it, as I have heard said. 
men were angels, then no government would be necessary. <laughs> well, sadly, that is very well said. Uh, but there can be no question. Our nation cannot bind together without powerful central government. But we must also accommodate the needs of our constituent states, both North and South. The power of one must check and balance the other. To that end, we must dedicate all of our energies and our care. And that was, um, of course, John Adams trying to balance <laughs> the debate there. He was always finding himself in between the various debating factor factions. Uh, welcome back to Just Right, CHRW 94.9 FM. Talking about America's history, and we just listened to a scene from the movie John Adams. Fascinating what, what was going on in that conversation. There was the beginnings of our debt bomb that we're sitting with today. It's an ominous discussion considering that they're talking about the creation of huge behemoths, um, bureaucracies, which today are just uh, just so large that they're impossible to get rid of or to fix. And, and you know, Jefferson could see it coming from centuries away. Yeah, listen and, to Jefferson there, the, the so-called libertarian, yeah. saying that, look, why do we even need to do any of this. You That's know, exactly self right. Self-reliance is what he was talking about, while the others, Ben Franklin and Adams, were talking about creating a, a nation-state and a bureaucracy and a republic which they wanted to keep in perpetuity. And, and none of that justified, you know, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. I don't know. That was John Hamilton's response. Mm -hmm. I'm going, well, that's kind of a non-sequitur. You have to be, a, I mean, if men were angels, we need debt. That's what he was saying. <laughs> you know, like debt is going to solve that problem. But I thought it was interesting in the earlier clip on the other side how in the conversation between Adams Jefferson um, talking about how when Jefferson put it to him and Adams interpreted it, he goes, my goodness, you're, you're suggesting not the artful arrangement of political power, but the cordoning off of a space, space yes. where no power exists at all. I found that just wonderfully expressed. And I think it's a famous quote, too. But. Somewhat Isabel Patterson-like. Oh, amazing. And it's just like, it's not saying, oh, hey, we don't want any government, but hey, there's a space here for people that government can't, can't touch them. Yeah. That's where they're supposed to be. So where have we come today, listening to those conversations of oh, 200 and some odd years ago, looking in the London Free Press, January 25th, State of the Union speech to focus on spending control. <laughs> Gee, who would have guessed, right? <laughs> Washington, Democrats and Republicans are gearing up for a clash over what is likely to be a central theme of President Barack Obama's address to Congress on Tuesday, deficit reduction and spending cuts. The very thing that Jefferson warned them against. White House spokesman Robert Gibbs said Obama's speech would not get bogged down in heavy policy de details or read like a laundry list of issues as some State of the Union addresses, end quote. In other words, he had nothing to say. And someone was not very happy about that, and that someone happens to be going to jail again, but his, <laughs> you know, his name is Conrad Black. And uh, he wrote just a few days after that, writing on January 29th of this year in the pages of the National Post, his commentary, a naive, sunny speech to a gloomy, withering country. <laughs> kind of caught my eye, you know. Yeah. And I think it's the way a lot of people are feeling about the states today. And some of the things he writes here, not just talking about the states, but other countries, and, our, and, and it comes back to Canada, which is great because that's where we'll be, we'll be going after this. But he writes, 
It was a seriously demoralizing experience to read that the majority of Americans thought that the Barack Obama gave a good State of the Union speech this week. Their approval may indicate that the process of the country's decline is more advanced than even I had, had feared. None of President Obama's aerated, flippant promises are believable in the slightest, coming from the most ever, overzealous regulator and profligate spender in the nation's history. There was not one hint of policies to reduce oil imports, increase domestic oil production, reduce the cost of health care, cut spending, pair entitlements, reform the tax system, uh, reverse the, admitted by Obama, decline of education standards, reform the prosecutor's shooting gallery of a justice system, or grapple realistically with the debt bomb, rather than just participate in a silent cabal with the European Union and Japan, get this, to devalue all of their currencies together, and thus reduce the debt, along with the net worth of all those who save or who have fixed incomes. What a bunch of shysters. Isn't that creepy? They're criminal. The United States is a rich country whose people are patriotic and hardworking. It is disoriented and very corrupt. Just, who's saying that word? Jefferson. He says, yeah, duh. And all its elites have failed, and yet it has no real rivals. That's the scary part. Europe is crumbling, even more idle and debt-ridden than the United States, and withering demographically, almost comatose after generations of paying Danigeld Danig- to the urban mobs and small farmers. Japan is a geriatric workshop. Russia is an alcohol-sodden, self-depopulating gangster state. Can you imagine? <laughs> and India, China, Brazil, and Indonesia comprise over three billion people, two-thirds of whom live as they did 3,000 years ago. They are putting up good economic growth numbers, but China's inflation rate is now in double digits. And all of those countries are largely dysfunctional and will require decades to have any chance of even seriously arriving America as it is today. This should provide time for the United States to pull out of its nosedive. President Obama said, we do big things. The United States has. (laughs) But after this presidential fiasco, I would not like to think of what he might have in mind for an encore. (laughs) They do do big things. Debt, for example. Yes, that's (laughs) that's the big things. And then finally, and I'm only reading, I've only read a small portion of this whole essay. It's a full page. But the final sentence was, there is a role for Canada and for Australia, countries that have most of America's advantages except the grandeur of scale and few of its problems to start to assume a bigger role in the world. The world wishes it, hmm. and we should be ready for it. Good hmm. ending. Yeah. But uh, hope for us. Yeah, what a sad picture for what's going on south of the border. And uh, so that was just a, a quick look at America then, when it was started, and America now. And, of course, um, Robert, both you and I know um, we were both saddened to learn of the passing of John Hospers yes. this past June 12th, who was the first libertarian president. Um, um, actually, he, this, this happened just a couple of weeks. Um, we just had him played something by him on the show a couple of weeks before he passed away. Mm-hmm. And I even said hi to him on the show. I knew he was a listener to the show, but he passed away on June 12th. And in this following excerpt, we're going to do this as a tribute to, to John. Taken from his July 24, 2000 presentation to ISIL, right here at the University of Western Ontario, John discusses his insights on philosophy. Interesting how he questions some of the anarchistic aspects of his own libertarian party. 
and he discusses the influence that Ayn Rand had upon his life. And when we return, we'll continue the discussion on the other side. Much of philosophy consists simply of this, varying the circumstances that are imagined so we can have a better idea of when the word applies in a given case. This is called conceptual analysis. It's been a large part of philosophy ever since Plato used it in his dialogues to uncover the meaning of such moral concepts as justice and virtue. Now, such questions do tend to make people impatient. They want to get on with it instead of stopping over what may seem to them trivial. If I have a car and replace its parts one by one, do I, at the end of this, have the same car or a different car? Well, I say, well, it depends what you want to call it, I say. But remember, the same question can be asked about a person, whether, for instance, he could survive various incarnations and still be the same person. This generates what philosophers call the problem of personal identity, which is still one whose solution is not agreed to by all hands, even today. I must say, even when my life changed and I ran for public office, I would wonder whether people should be... Um, well, let me back up one second. I'm going to just two examples of uh, sort of in-house problems with libertarians. One, the immigration open borders pro problem. I would wonder to anyone who said there should be absolutely open borders for everybody, I would wonder whether people should be admitted if they had communicable diseases not found here, but found in their country of origin. Or whether the flotsos, flotsam from Castro's prisons and mental hospitals should be admitted willingly into the U.S. as he dumped them on us early in the 1980s and are still bedeviling our criminal justice system. Or whether they should be admitted at all if they come not to work but simply to collect welfare checks. Here's a famous libertarian dictum, the only other one I'll mention here. Never initiate force, but it generates problems, even against naughty children, even against check forgers who haven't raised a hand to anybody. What about returning to your home after an earthquake and being told by the police, it's still not safe, you can't enter your home yet? Was it wrong for the South American jungle tribesmen to kill missionaries some hundreds of years ago, even though the missionaries had not attacked them and not initiated force, but the tribesmen wanted to send a clear message, don't trespass on our territory, were they justified? And so on. I always would tend to think of possible exceptions. And uh, that makes philosophers a kind of irritant. <laughs> Nevertheless, I think it's an essential uh, part of our profession. So, uh, I had taught ethics, and I was interested in political philosophy too, but I found most historical writers on the subject rather tiresome to read compared with writers in aesthetics and epistemology. But my dormant interest in political philosophy didn't really begin to blossom until I got to know Ayn Rand. We had a fairly close friendship for several years. We discussed every conceivable subject through the long evenings. I've written about this in various periodicals, most recently in full context last year. So I won't say anything more about it here, except to say that these discussions just energized me enormously. 
I think I had become jaded enough to feel that anything more I would learn would be old news, but no longer. I continued, still continue, to disagree with her about some issues, like necessary propositions. But it was never possible to be quite the same after encountering Ayn Rand. How well I remember her saying to me once, when I was sort of deprecating the people in my profession, or the profession itself, and she said, yours is the most important profession in the world. The world can recover from material setbacks, but it may never recover from a dose of bad ideas. I often th thought of that and think of it to this day in moments of discouragement. Had it not been for her influence, I certainly would never have become a member of the newly formed Libertarian Party and surely would not have consented to run for office. That's our kind of a thing that makes me uh, feel Canadian, because a toque, to me, that is a, that's our national hat right there, right? It's a big old toque. I was down in the States uh, uh, doing a show, I said the word toque when I was down there. You ever do that when you're in the States? You ever say toque? Means nothing to them. It means nothing. It's like you stopped talking and just started making sounds. <laughs> so you said, where could I get a food? I'm a little chilly. Where could I get a plebe? It means nothing to them. You know, it's weird. They don't even have their own corresponding word for toque in the States. They don't even have their own word. They call it like a cold weather knit stocking cap for wintertime or something. We didn't have time for that in Canada. Your brain would have froze before you got off the porch. I need a cold weather knit stocking cap. Jesus' brain froze. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can join us at 519-661-3600. And today we're talking about July 4th and July 1st, Dominion Day and the American Day of Independence. Not the day to wear a toque. <laughs> in Canada. No, I'm so glad that they decided to create the country in the summer yeah. months and not in February. There you go. Yeah, wouldn't that be a difficult uh, celebration? Setting off fireworks. Yeah. The fireworks would freeze. Yeah. <laughs> I have a little bit to say about the two countries and basically what makes us a little different from each other, actually substantially different from each other, and also some of the flaws that were created at the very beginning in the first days of both our nations, which are going to probably prove our end. Oh, that's a big flaw. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. yeah, big flaw. Just, we just, can't turn around from these, It's almost think? like chaos theory. You know how the wings of a butterfly yeah. can affect a hurricane the world away, at least that theory? That's the theory, yeah. You know, it's almost like that. One little tiny mistake in the Declaration of Independence or in our own Constitution or the BNA Act, one little mistake will multiply itself over hundreds of years. And I think that that's what we're seeing right now. It's the butterfly effect of these mistakes. Hmm. Now, I don't usually normally use the word uh, sacred, but if there was any unholy thing on earth worthy of veneration, I think it would be the American Declaration of Independence. Yes, uh, Jefferson picked the right word when he picked sacred, even though he wasn't yeah. 
using it in a religious sense. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. yeah. It's worthy of veneration or awe or admiration. Mm-hmm. You know, at once it's not simply a political document, but a moral one. It's pre, or it's it's beginning, the first few sentences, the first paragraph, in so few words, expresses more than any tome or volume preceding it. Its simplicity and purpose is almost sublime to me. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. And while it's true that the Americans had just cause to form their own nation, and valid grievances with their despotic Marnock, King George III, it may be said that the same lust for individual freedom was felt by those in the other British colonies. As Jefferson said, all men are created equal. We all share a desire for individual freedom. It's ironic then that the 13 colonies of the United States saw fit not just to declare themselves independent, but to invade Canada. (laughs) When the inhabitants of Canada did not share the same grievances with King George III. Now, while these invasions were successfully repelled, with the aid, by the way, of the aboriginals here, the remainder of British North America saw a different way, a way to advance the cause of independence and even freedom while maintaining a hold on the hundreds of years old institutions of Great Britain, including the monarchy. Our way was more conservative, more in the vein of Edmund Burke. Burke was sympathetic to the American Revolution, no doubt, and used his position in the British Parliament to try and persuade the king to ease the duty levied on tea, lest the Americans choose to rebel. This is Burke, I'm quoting. Again and again, revert to your old principles, he tells the king. Seek peace and ensue it. Leave America if she has taxable matter in her, to tax herself. I'm not here into the dis- I'm not here going into the distinctions of rights, nor attempting to mark their boundaries. I do enter into these metaphysical distinctions. I do not rather enter into these metaphys- metaphysical distinctions. I hate the very sound of them. Leave the Americans as they anciently stood, and these distinctions, born of our unhappy contest, will die along with it. He's talking there about enumerating rights. Mm -hmm. The king didn't relent, of course, and the Americans chose freedom over British sovereignty, much like Burke foretold. But in doing so, they did what Burke feared. They began to mark the boundaries of rights, first with the Declaration of Independence, and then later, uh, what was it, 13 years later, Bob? I think it was 13 years Mm -hmm. later, with the Constitution of the United States. Burke Don't ask cor- me on dates. <laughs> <laughs> That's all history, isn't yeah. it? All dates. Burke correctly saw the danger of listing the rights of man. For even though in the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson said, among these, and later in the Constitution, the Ninth Amendment said, quote, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Burke seemed to know that once you begin to mark the boundaries of rights, to list them, to enumerate them, what is omitted is said not to exist at all later on. Mm -hmm. 
Rights not clearly included in the Constitution would be trampled upon by government. Burke knew this. That's why I've always warned against people wanting to be recognized under a charter, like gay rights and, and you know, anything like that. You don't want to get, get that recognition in there because pretty soon that will be the limit. You're limiting rights yes, when you start limiting. To, to demarcate them, to enumerate them, saying we have this right, this right, this right, and this right. Forgetting, of course, that we have a lot of individual rights. As, as individual rational human beings, we are endowed by our creator, so to speak, with a lot of rights. Well, Among you, them are life, liberty, and property. Yes, and, and you know, of course, you only have an individual right, and, and, and the only prohibition should be on those few things you cannot do, not mm -hmm. on everything you can do. As I said, Bob, <laughs> yeah. the Declaration of Independence was a remarkable document, yep. worthy of veneration. Now, if left to that alone, the United States may have achieved so much more than it already has. And while the enumeration and demarcation of rights and the Constitution of the United States may have seemed like a good idea at the time, 235 years ago, I suspect that it marked the beginning of the end for freedom in the United States. The Constitution gave Congress the right to impose taxes on its citizens and to borrow money on the credit of the United States. And we can all see where, what happened when you, when you gave them that right. Yep. Both flaws have been magnified over the years to the extent that today taxation is several fold while King George taxed them. And their debt is, as we know, astronomical and quite impossible to repay. Absolutely impossible. Forget it. You can't repay no. that, ta that debt. The writing's on the wall for the United States of America. And for a lot of other countries in the world, too, as we know. And for a lot know. of other countries as well. Because the United States followed their path. Actually, you know? the United States <laughs> set ways. the path for a lot of countries. Uh, that's well, they indebted themselves to some of them, too, mm -hmm. <laughs> including England. Now, by contrast, we here in Canada have nothing to compare to a declaration of independence because we haven't become independent of Britain, in a sense. The British North America Act is a piece of dry compromises and dealings, the results of many years of negotiations with the four original colonies and Prince Edward Island and Newfoundland, by the way. Our nation was not born of blood in the way the United States was. It was an orderly, organic, and a slow reformation of British colonies. But this was not such a bad thing. In fact, over the, the test of time, I dare say that ours may have been the better way. That is, until the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was folded into the B&A Act to become the Constitution Act. With the Charter of Rights, we've endangered every right, right we had recognized before by their exclusion. Now consider an article by Karen Selleck hmm. in the National Post, uh, sorry, the uh, Financial Post, which is a supplement to the National Post, of June 28th this week, where she notes that Justice Antonio Lemire of the Supreme Court of Canada rejected any economic rights and raised doubts about whether economic liberty should be considered part of life, liberty, and security of the person, which were guaranteed in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Since economic rights were not mentioned, therefore he apparently concluded, we don't have them. That's uh, putting it in a nutshell, of course, but that's what it is. This is, of course, how governments begin to fall, with the trampling of rights based on the exclusion from charters and constitutions. In the same article, Selleck notes that as far back as 1909, was that 102 years ago, the B.C. Supreme Court recognized that, quote, among the normal rights which are available to every British subject against all the world are the unmolested pursuit of one's trade or occupation and to one's own property. Now, here's a, here's a Supreme Court 
telling us, recognizing that we have rights to these things, even including property rights, the rights to economic liberty, to trade, your occupation. But they didn't need to be enumerated or demarcated in any charter or any constitution or declaration. We had them based on what are you suggesting? 700 here, years of law. Are you suggesting all these wonderful documents and constitutions are actually working to our detriment rather than that is our my benefit? That is my thesis, Bob. That's, that's rather radical, huh? That's my thesis, yeah. Before their enumeration and constitutions, rights were living things, freely recognized by all. The common person, the courts, the monarch. Canada fared relatively well without a demarcation of rights in a constitution relying on 700 years of jurisprudence and common law. Burke said it best when he said, quote, the people of the colonies are descendants of Englishmen. They are therefore not only devoted to liberty, but to liberty according to English ideas and on English principles. He said that 250 odd years ago, about 240 years ago. He was not only speaking of the American colonies, of course, but of all the British North American colonies, including Upper and Lower Canada, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. And tomorrow we celebrate Canada Day. I suggest that just before we set off our fireworks, we give a thought to the hundreds of years of legal tradition, thought and care, which went into creating this nation and some thought as to how fragile our rights are and how, with the stroke of a judge's pen, they can be violated. On July 4th, our neighbors celebrating their day of independence from Britain and the forming of a country which, although reveres the rights of man, has endangered those very rights by enumerating them, they too should give pause as to how much longer they can celebrate living in a free country. They should read again their own 235-year-old Declaration of Independence, especially the line that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute a new government. Are you listening, Mr. Obama? Happy Dominion Day, happy Canada Day, <laughs> and to our neighbors, a happy July 4th. May we all have many more. Some real food for thought there, Robert. Time to take a break. Let's take that break. When we come back, we've got a few th other issues to clean up that we kind of left open last week. We'll be back right after this. I think I can sum up the difference between our two cultures pretty quickly. Uh, here's the difference. You can uh, go to the darkest corners of the Amazon rainforest. Right? Spend two weeks paddling to find the lost uh, Sohan Japa tribe. Right? Find the uh, chief of the tribe roasting a lizard over the fire. And you can say to that man, what is American culture? And he'll put down his Pepsi. <laughs> and he'll take off his Walkman and he'll say, what's up? Huh? And how do I know that, ladies and gentlemen? Because I received a Canada Council grant to go to the Amazon <laughs> and write a haiku about it. There you go. Oftentimes, uh, here's something else I noticed. Uh, what they have in American culture, oftentimes we have in Canada, we just call it something different. We didn't know that we, uh, we got, maybe got there first, you know? Like, uh, okay, well in America, uh, they uh, take ordinary people, put them in a life-threatening situation, make them eat disgusting things, Call it Fear Factor. Well, we've had that here for years, you know. We just call that Air Canada. <laughs> Sometimes what you find in American culture, it wouldn't translate if you tried to bring it over the border. Like, uh, before Joe Millionaire, they had that Who Wants to Marry a Multimillionaire show on, on Fox. And to me, that, you know, there's America right there. Glamour, excess, promise of being rich and famous. You know, Canada, we value thrift. 
good sense. You know? Our show would be, who wants to marry a guy with a whole lot of Club Z points? That'd be our show. Right? Yeah. And just women lined up for that thrifty Canadian, huh? Just looking sharp in his Z-wear. Canadian tire money in this pocket. going to let you go on vacation, do you? Yeah, I know he is. Well, he's not, because I talked to him. He's got experiments worked out that's going to take about the next 50 years. No, I'm leaving in the morning. Oh, no, you're not. No, yeah. you're not. Oh, you, you want to bet? You want to bet? How about $100? No, I don't want your money. I really well, don't. Come on, $100 says you're not. I'll bet you a dollar. $100. Five. A hundred dollars. Roger, a hundred dollars. A hundred, you're on. No, wait a minute. A hundred dollars, you're on. But there you are, Major Nelson. Oh, you've been looking for me, sir? I've been thinking things over. You've been working terribly hard, but uh, that's what we're here for, sir. I realize that it's been three years since you've had a vacation, but... That's quite all right, sir. I'm prepared to go ahead with the test. No, Major. I won't let you make that sacrifice. It so happens, I'm taking a little vacation myself, starting tomorrow morning. So, you can make your vacation as well. Oh, well, that's different. Of course, that's, that's quite different. You can start leaving tomorrow morning. Have a good time. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. You're, uh, you're not going to take the money, are you? She wouldn't take it, but you would, because it was just, you said five, and I said uh, 100, but you said one. You're not take it all. I guess all you have to do to get out of sacrificing your vacation is have a genie, Robert. <laughs> Who can I just have that one here in the bottle. And, you know, there was a perfect example of, of a real sacrifice. Tony did not want to go on, you know, on back to work. He wanted to have his vacation. Mm -hmm. So that was a sacrifice for him. He did everything he could to get out of it. Finally, Dr. Bellows comes back. Don't know if you ever saw I Dream of Genie from the 60s. And he said, I don't want you to make that sacrifice, right? Well, we got a bit of a, of a letter from one of our compatriots on our discussion last week. Did you want to take a look at that, Robert? Sure. It's from Paul McKeever, the leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario, and he writes, Dear Bob and Robert, in the third quarter of your show on June 23rd, you discuss the nature of sacrifice. Bob Metz gave the example of a parent choosing between buying a cottage and buying an education for his child. Bob said, Whatever the choice a person makes, when they make a choice, it always represents a greater value to the person making it. And... Whatever choices made always reflects a greater value to the person making it, and that's why they gain. I respectfully disagree. People, when thinking irrationally, deliberately and freely choose a lesser value to a greater one. Subjectivists and intrinsicists do the, just that all of the time. The issue is, how does one determine what is a value? If the father in your example merely feels like buying the cottage rather than buying his son's education and thereby does what he wants to do, that does not imply that he has necessarily chosen the greater value over the lesser one. Whether the cottage or the son's education is the greater value is a matter of fact, not feeling. He might well feel that he wants to buy that cottage, while knowing, if he chooses to think about it rationally, that is, that his son's education is, to the father, the thing that is, in fact, the greater value, and if he follows his feelings rather than his own rational judgment in such a situation, he has, in fact, made a sacrifice, even if he doesn't feel like he has done so. Force, a political social concept, is a red herring in this context. 
Value and sacrifice are issues of morality, not of politics. Accordingly, sacrifice is not limited to the sacrifice of others via the use of force or fraud, which are political issues, but include the sacrifice of oneself by oneself, which is not a political issue. An individual can most certainly choose freely to sacrifice himself or his other values. For evidence of the same, just look at the largely peaceful yet crumbling parts of the world around you. Cheers, Paul McKeever. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Robert, you and I discussed this already. We tended to, to agree with a large portion of it, and yet we ended up arguing for another hour over the I whole think we end up disagreeing issue. with Paul. Um, I, I was all over the place. I, I'm almost wondering, I remember last time we had a similar debate on the nature of free will and determinism, and I found out, you know, we agreed, each of us agreed that determinism existed and that free will existed, and yet we would argue again, because... I think we determined that free will... Determined. Well... Determined that free will was a subset in a deterministic metaphysics. Well, it, whether you're talking metaphysics or whether you're talking epistemology, that's what changes the way you look at mm -hmm. a word like that. Now... Um, I kind of feel like it's almost the same situation here. I understand what Paul's saying. He's saying value and sacrifice are issues of morality. He's basically saying if somebody forces you to lose something, that's not a sacrifice on your part in that sense. You know, he's saying that that's a political issue and it's because, a hearing, which, by the way, Paul, I agree. Yeah. I agree that determining a value for yourself is a moral choice, not because, a political Because when something's forced on you, you don't have a choice. That's There's right. no mor morality involved. I understand that. Of course, and we agree there. But you know, I went to the I went to the dictionary, and then I went to Ayn Rand, and I found uh, some of what of a confusion that might be part of the problem. And both of them did it. Funk and Wagnall, sacrifice, quote, a giving up of some cherished or desired object, person, idea, etc., for the sake of something else. Also, that which is so given up. So on the one hand, you have a verb, the act of giving up. The other is a noun, the thing that has been sacrificed itself sacrifice, right? The shepherd sacrificed a sheep, therefore the shepherd sacrificed a sacrifice. You know what I mean? Yes. That there's the there's the, a verb kind of use of it and a noun use of it, and yet they don't really look at them that clearly. And I was wondering if that might be part of the issue. Um, for example, Rand's own examples of sacrifices and non-sacrifices. If you exchange a penny for a dollar, it is not a sacrifice. If you exchange a dollar for a penny, it is, she says. If you achieve the career you wanted after years of struggle, it's not a sacrifice. If you then renounce it for the sake of a rival, it is. If you own a bottle of milk and give it to your starving child, it is not a sacrifice. If you give it to your neighbor's child and let your own die, it is. If you give money to help a friend, it is not a sacrifice. If you give it to a worthless stranger, it is. Which is why you want a lot of friends on Facebook, by the way. Uh, if you give your, your friend a sum you can afford, it's not a sacrifice. If you can't afford it, it is, etc. Now, I'm thinking here, penny for a dollar, okay? If you exchange a dollar for a penny. So what's the sacrifice? The 99 cents or the act of exchange? What, which of, what are we talking about? It's hard to even determine in that example. If it's the act, then any valuation of an actual versus perceived gain or loss, perhaps a person making the exchange even believes he will gain by making that exchange. Maybe he thinks the penny is worth something, right? It's true. If you, you know go I mean? to a, if you go to a five-year-old, for example, and saying, uh, back when the day oh. when we had a paper dollar, and say, would yeah. you like this shiny quarter or would you like this paper dollar? And the five-year-old says, oh, give me the shiny quarter. They value it more, even though objectively a quarter is worth less than a dollar. But subjectively, which all decisions, all values yeah. are made subjectively, by the way, 
the quarter is, is of more value to that person. Would I say that child made a sacrifice because he chose a nickel over the over the dime because the nickel's bigger? Nickel's bigger, yeah. yeah no, you know, I wouldn't say that. They chose something he, subjectively. He did, he did, however, pick something of lesser value. Objectively measured, yes. yes. Did he make a sacrifice? I don't know about that. I would say no, right off the bat, it, no. And I think... You know, this is where I got kind of even confused about it. You know, I'm thinking, well, okay, are you talking about that act? Are you talking about at the time of exchange? You can't be retro-determining things to justifiably call something or not an act of sacrifice. No. And that's maybe where I have a bit of problem with what Paul's argument is. I'm sure he's got a, a retort to this or another response. But um, Yeah, just, just in closing, Bob, I think that when you make a decision, a choice, a value judgment, it is yours to make totally subjectively based on the information that you have and your wishes and desires. A person from the outside objectively looking at such a, a choice cannot properly determine whether something is of a greater value or of lesser value. For example, a jihadist chooses non-existence or 72 virgins to, as opposed to living in peace. But they're not making a sacrifice according to themselves. When they blow themselves up, they're choosing a higher value, eternal life with virgins, whoopee, you know. They're having a, they're, there's no sacrifice there. From us, obviously, they're sacrificing their life because we know that there are no 72 virgins waiting for them in some non-existent afterlife. But you can't determine, you can't put yourself in their skin. Value judgment is totally subjective based on their wishes and desires and their facts at hand. We can't do that. We can't make that judgment. Not for others, no. I don't think, that, I don't think this issue is quite finished yet, but, um, you know, Rand said the sacrifice is the surrender of that which you value in favor for that which you don't value, you know, and this sounds more like an act of sacrificing. And in other times she talks about the thing that's being sacrificed, and which is to me the metaphysical, okay? Mm. I sacrificed uh, a dime for a nickel. Okay, objectively, I can't argue with that. The dime's worth more than a nickel. Okay, you win. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. But is that what a sacrifice is about? And it's it's the kind of argument I guess we can go back and forth on for a while, and I'm sure we will. But that's all the time we have for today, because we have to leave until we come back next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. And we hope you'll join us then next week. Until then, be right, stay right, act right, do right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade Happy Canada Day. Color, color into black and white in 1812 to go back a bit in 1812 Thomas Jefferson said that conquering Canada would be quote a mere matter of marching since that was 191 years ago and given the way Americans read maps it makes you wonder if there aren't still a few soldiers out there trying to find us You know, Americans think they won the War of 1812 because they got Maine. That's true. Maine was once part of Canada. We called it New Nova Scotia. Or was it Old Nova Scotia? That was one of the Scotias. Anyway, think about it. We kept Maine. What if we kept it? Stephen King would be Canadian. And I'd make a lot more money for looking this much like him.